Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back to uh, the second hour of Amplify, where our guest is Pastor Jay Kim. He's written a book called uh, Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. Uh, it applies mostly to uh, uh, what would be Protestant churches, <clears throat> evangelical. But uh, having read it, uh, I think that there are ideas there, even within our structure of worship. Um, future is going to be different in many ways. Uh, we have uh, priests now that have uh, uh, three, four church buildings. They're not going to have them in the in the future as we as we begin more and more to uh, to merge. But uh, the future is going to be different, no question about it. And I think there's some ideas in here that would help to support our worship and our and our ministry. Also, I think something we can learn from the experience that we're talking about here. What are we talking about? Let me just read three passages from from the book titled Analog Church, which will give you some idea what we talked about and then where we're moving to. Um, Pastor J. Kim writes, One of the most encouraging things about the shift we're seeing from large influential churches and their leaders is its potential for deconstructing the idolatrous influence of Christian celebrity. He writes also, A sermon is a work of the church and not merely a work of the preacher. We must begin to see preaching as an opportunity to embed ourselves in real time and in real space with real people, people we can see hear and touch. And then just uh, one more taken directly from the book. I'm not suggesting a hard stop to the usage of all digital media in our churches. Far from it. I am simply stating the need for a shift away from our carefully manicured, perfectly professional digital presentations that come across as far too pristine and not nearly personal Enough. Uh, Jay, tell us a little bit about, uh, we've been talking uh, all around it, it's just uh, two specific philosophical shifts that you believe uh, have happened, uh, joy and mourning, creating an artistry. Um, I, I think a big part of it has to do with, uh, it's beyond the church, it's just culturally where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a real strong desire to be happy, and with that has has come an increased uh, um, loss of uh, willingness to uh, 
endure hardship and pain. And that's problematic on a number of levels, as you well know. Uh, but in particular, when it comes to uh, the life of the church, I think it's especially problematic because uh, the life of following Jesus and uh, a life of surrender to God, at least in my best understanding of the Bible, is one that requires uh, endurance. And it's one that requires us to, um, you know, I'm borrowing from the words of an evangelical pastor writer, Tim Keller here. He says, you know, the Christian ethic is to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows while um, looking forward to the oncoming joy, Uh, whereas the world really longs to sit in the midst of joy and happiness um, and just live in sort of a subtle anxiety and fear of oncoming sorrow. And so, uh, you know, the the only point, the main point I'm trying to make there, you know, in the little section that you quoted is uh, that we have to move away from trying to present this sort of polished, pristine picture of uh, what it means to be a Christian, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I think in the digital age, especially because of all of the tools that are so readily accessible, it's really easy to create incredibly polished, really, you know, digitally sophisticated uh, stories that sort of present this idea, you know, so- social media is a great example of this, just everybody sort of posting their highlights up there, you know, and um, I think what we need to do is invite a much broader, fuller, uh, realer breadth of human experience into the life of the church to understand that every time we gather, uh, whether it's you know just a few of pe- uh, a few of us or hundreds or even thousands of us, there are uh, so many uh, in the gathering, whatever the gathering size, who are experiencing so many different things. You know, some are. Um, experiencing just absolute elation and joy and everything's going great in their life. And some are showing up in deep mourning and grieving and pain yes. and everything in between. And so uh, I think the, the the life of the church has to embody that reality. I think that's true in the Bible itself. You know, the scriptures are, um, they, they encompass all human emotions, you know, from the high mountaintop moments down to the deepest, darkest valleys and, you know, the long mundane plateaus. And um, in the digital age, we have to be really intentional uh, about doing that because if we're not, then the tools and technologies that are before us make it so easy to present um, just a, you know, smiley, happy, pristine sort of highlight version of our lives and of the church and, uh, I think that misses the point altogether. Uh, I want to talk about uh, Scripture in just a second. Um, one of the persons you quote off in your book is uh, Sherry Turkle, and uh, this was uh, a book titled Alone Together, where she points out that talking about kids while they were busy communicating with the digital world, many of them sending texts and Snapchat messages, they were squandering the opportunity to commune with the real people in their midst. Uh, wow, it, it says it almost says it all there, but the the part of the book that probably fascinated me the most—it's hard to say because so much did—is the next section. Um, 
where you believe that our technological ambitions have been getting the best of us since the very beginning. And you answer why you believe that verse by verse in talking about the story of Babel. Tell us what we can learn from that scripture, for example. Yeah, I mean, the the Tower of Babel story, which some are familiar with, um, it's, you know, there's a lot there. So the story uh, isn't only, I I don't believe it's only trying to make the single point that I'm trying to make in that section of the book. However, the point I am trying to make is, I believe, one of the many points of the story. And the reason I believe that is if you're familiar uh, or unfamiliar with the Tower of Babel story, essentially Genesis chapter 11, very early on in the human story, according to the Bible, people, human beings, all have one language, and they're fearful of something. They're afraid that uh, if if they don't stay unified together as a people, uh, that they're going to be scattered. They're afraid, for whatever reason, of being scattered all over the earth. There's lots of, um, you know, historical contextual reasons for that. Uh, that we don't have time to get into, but they fear that. And so their response to that fear, they say, they literally say, let us build a tower that reaches to the heavens to make a name for ourselves. And what's fascinating about that is that phrase, name for ourselves, in the original language, it um, very explicitly means that they're seeking self-glory or fame for themselves. They want to sort of establish their significance on a global scale. And so uh, the story tells us that for that reason, to sort of achieve glory and fame for themselves so that they wouldn't be scattered or, or lose their place, their land, which was contextually a really important thing, a very big deal, they decide to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And uh, by all accounts, you know, most scholars agree that this tower they're talking about was an ancient um, structure that was called a ziggurat. This is a very common type of ancient tower type of structure. And ziggurats were designed, actually, not for people to ascend, but rather they were these towers that were built as a sort of monument to invite the gods um, to descend and to be amongst the people. So right away in the story, we see very clearly that the people are using a very particular technology, the ziggurat, the tower, and they're misappropriating the technology. They're misplacing it. They're designing it um, for something that it wasn't meant to do. So it was, it, was a, it was a structure that was designed and intended to invite the gods to descend and be with the people, but instead they're taking that technology and using it to ascend and make a name for themselves. And in fact, to, to take, drive the point home even more clearly, the writer mentions to us that instead of using stone, they use brick yes. and mortar, and this is a technological advancement at the time, and it's also technological language. And so essentially the story, one of the points of the story is this is what happens when humans take technology and use it for selfish gain. And the story goes that the people end up experiencing the thing that they were most fearful of. They become scattered, and uh, they they once spoke one language, and now – they're split up into a variety of languages. And so, um, you know, that, that, that story, I think, is emblematic for me in so many ways of what's happening today. Um, <clears throat> these technologies that were intended to connect us more deeply, to create a global village, while it certainly has done that in some ways, uh, in much more deeper human ways, it's actually really isolated us. It's scattered us. It's disconnected us. Mm. 
uh, as we've sort of leveraged these technologies for selfish gain. So, you know, I think there's a lot there. I find that Tower of Babel story just absolutely riveting and fascinating. And, uh, and I think it has some prophetic things to say about the day and age in which we find ourselves now. Yeah, I like the way you uh, summarize it. We are indeed more scattered than ever before. This is the ultimate paradox of the digital age. At the moment in human history, when technology allows us to be more connected than ever, we are so very far apart to the point that our very understanding of quote-unquote community has devolved into a sort of collection of in isolated individuals. Boy, that just that just seems to say say it all in, in so many so many ways that uh, digital dialogue uh, leaves little to no room for reflection and nuance. Uh, and that we have a propensity to radically lower, you write, our expectations of of one another. And so the total number of churches, you point out, streaming worship services is astronomical at at, at, at this particular time. And, uh, and, and yet, um, it's not bringing us closer together. Um, this is not, you write, the language of community is the language of commodity— an online church is more a product to be consumed than it is a people to be joined. Community isn't about setting a project, a product, excuse me, product out there, but about gathering people wherever they are. We're looking for a way to get our product out there, and this was the easiest to access for a wide variety of people and more user-friendly, get our product out there, easy to access, user-friendly. Uh, says it in in so many so many ways. Um, Mark Zuckerberg proposed that mm-hmm. Facebook would become the new church a few years ago. Uh, that didn't happen. Is there any church that it could still happen? And if so, why? Yeah, I mean, I think what Zuckerberg was trying to say was that uh, Facebook and technologies like Facebook that. Uh, act as this sort of connecting medium online would become the primary places where people would go to experience community. And, you know, it's on the one hand, I guess you can say he was right in the sense that so many people are there uh, experiencing what I would call a sort of pseudo version of community. But I would also more importantly argue that he's utterly wrong. One, on a number of levels. One, Um, mediums like Facebook will never be the church because the church, again, in my estimation, is an embodied, incarnational, in-the-flesh, tactile, uh, physical reality where real people show up and share life with one another in real ways. And you just can't do that fully uh, through digital mediums like Facebook. Um, But, you know, at the same time, uh, the tool, again, I want to be careful here, you know, the tool Mm -hmm. itself, when it's leveraged correctly, is helpful. You know, our church right now during coronavirus, we're actually using Facebook's live stream mechanism to um, do our Sunday worship gatherings. And it has a chat feature that we've found really helpful. So we've got some, uh, some of our pastors there live during the worship gathering, sort of talking to people and at least chatting with with them. And so, 
you know, it's helpful when you use it appropriately. Um, so again, I'm not arguing that, you know, people should become Luddites or Amish and just throw away all electronic devices. Not, not at all. You know, it's very far from, from what I'm trying to say, but, uh, at the same time, you know, our people, at least at our church are really, really looking forward to the day when, um, this, uh, the bands will be lifted, and we could at least, even in smaller groups, you know, gather together. We're really looking forward to that. So um, there you go. I don't know if uh, if that answers all yes. of your questions. That yes, it, uh, you yeah. point out salvation in Christ is not an individual experience. We are a family. Sure. And it, you write, digital communities are convenient and customizable. They are based on yeah. our preferences and designed to be easily and quickly chosen or unchosen. Don't like something someone said on your Facebook feed? Unfriend them. Annoyed by someone's endless stream of gratuitous food pics on your Instagram feed? Unfollow them. Irritated by the opinions of someone on Twitter? Block them. All these options can be activated with a push of a button in a split second. But then you go on to say, analog communities are different. When we show up in the flesh... It's not as easy to unfriend, unfollow, and block because despite the differences in incompatibility, here we are. So it just says it so way, uh, so so well in in such a simple way. Um, and so um, that it's not preference we need to be talking about. You point out, but but presence, not communicating but communing. And there's a significant difference there, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, uh, my friend Brett McCracken, who's a writer, he wrote a book called Uncomfortable. Um, he has this great line in the book about Christian community, and he basically says Christian community is based on commitment, not compatibility. And that's so antithetical to our world, you know, especially in the digital age. When I go on social media, whatever social media I happen to be using, it's all about compatibility. It's all about my preferences. You know, I follow who I want to follow and unfollow who I don't want to follow anymore. And yet, you know, in the church, uh, that's not so. And, and certainly, you know, we can dig a little deeper and there, there's a lot to say about like church hopping and all that kind of stuff. So even... In person, there is a lot of sort of our our um, late modern uh, consumeristic tendencies that come out. But for the most part, I think in the digital world, digital age, uh, man, that stuff is so it's accentuated uh, to the nth degree. And so I, I just think that's so crucial. I mean, the, the thing you said um, about communing and communicating, that's a key idea for me in the book. And uh, again, those two words, to commune and to communicate, they both have some right. elasticity of meaning. But for Let's, me, I think... Let, let me break in. Hold, I, yeah, hold yeah, that please. thought. We've come up against a break, and we'll we'll be right back. Okay. Welcome back to uh, Amplify. Final segment, just about uh, 20 minutes uh, long. It's almost the top of the hour. Our guest is Pastor Jay Kim. The title of the book is Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and things in the digital age. And uh, when we took the, the break, we were talking about not preference, but presence, not communicating, but communing. You were making a distinction then, Pastor. 
Yes. Yeah. I think that the main distinction I just want to make again, I was saying, you know, I do know that both of those words have some elasticity of meaning, uh, but at their core level, at their core sort of base roots, um, I think a distinction can be made that communication is primarily the exchange of information. But deeper than that is um, communing, which I would argue is the exchange not simply of informa- information, excuse me, but the exchange of presence. And uh, ultimately, you know, our most significant, important relationships, the ones that um, leave us changed and transformed, uh, the ones that impact us the most, uh, the ones in which we impact and influence another life the most, uh, are relationships that involve um, not just communication, although it certainly involves communication, but also more deeply involves communing, exchanging not just information, but exchanging our very presence with one another. And so, you know, in the church, although I'd be naive to think that that happens automatically just because you say you belong to the same church together, we all know that that's not true. It takes years and uh, often years and and many, many uh, um, uh, hours and days spent together to build rapport and trust. I think that's the end goal. And if we stop at simply communicating then we have to understand that um, we're basically uh, giving up just short of, of the sort of depth of relationship that I think Christian discipleship calls us into, which demands communing, um, exchanging not just information, but exchanging our entire presence, the depth of who we are mm-hmm. with one another. And so that's what I long for. You know, it's hard, it's difficult, um, but it's what I long for as a follower of Jesus, and uh, and it's what I long to see happen in our churches. Um, as we get to the uh, towards the end of the program, uh, this is the part of the program where I think I should have I should have gone a little bit faster in the earlier part of the program to get uh, through parts of the book that I that I really enjoyed too. But you um, summarize that uh, true analog community is what the world is hungry for, whether they know or not, and um, you quote uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer more than once, and here you have this quote, the more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more everything else between us will recede, and the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is alive between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we really do have one another, and then you you give some examples of how that that happens. Simple ideas that are titled the the art of gathering, people coming together, presence and pain, people coming together, supporting one another, spare the goats, but don't stop confessing. Uh, the importance of of uh, forgiving confession, staying and feasting. Pentecost online, a broken down box truck, which is a nice story about. Uh, divine providence, in my mind, how things really, really can work out when people uh, work together and, and trust in, in in God. But tell us a little bit about uh, the calculated, it's fascinating, I never thought about it, about the calculated intentionality with which tech companies were designing applications to mimic the psychological effects of casino slot machines. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it is really, truly fascinating. Um, 
So, yeah, the short of it is, you know, when you think about uh, the applications on your phone, so whether it's a social media feed or, you know, maybe you, you're doing some banking online or something, or, like most applications or email, this is a great example as well, most, not all, but most, the majority of applications on our phones, uh, even though they're all different companies, they uh, have the same sort of physical mechanism by which you refresh uh, the application, meaning if you're on your email or you're on social media and you're scrolling through and you want to see if, if there's anything new on the feed or if you have a new email, it's the same physical interaction to refresh the application. You pull down on the screen and then some sort of circular motion spins in front of you and then the screen pops right back up to tell you, reveal to you whether or not you have a new email or you have a new, uh, some new things on your Instagram feed or a new like or a new notification. And the reason that is, it's not, um, you know, it's not just random. It's not that all of these companies decided, hey, just randomly let's have the same sort of physical mechanism to refresh. Uh, the reality is, you know, um, in digital design, they discovered that back in the 1920s when they were designing casino slot machines, for some reason, for one reason or another, they discovered neurologically that people have a propensity to get more addicted. Uh, there was some sort of dopamine, extra dopamine pleasure chemical jolt when they were able to pull down on a lever, see some mm. numbers spinning in front of them, and then have the numbers and the lever pop right back up to reveal whether or not you hit the jackpot. And uh, that's why, you know, that's why still to this day, even with digital slot machines, you still uh, press or pull on something, something spins in front of you, and then it pops to a standstill to reveal to you whether or not you won. This is designed, it's based on a sort of human neurological reality called intermittent variable reward, which I described briefly in the book. And basically, intermittent variable rewards, neurologically, the way it's designed is it's actually designed to, to get you to continue pulling the lever. Right. And um, this is not random, you know? So the, the point I'm trying to make is that uh, our digital technologies that we use, there's a reason why so many of us find ourselves addicted. It's because they're designed to get us addicted, right? The digital technologies, essentially, they are commodifying our attention and our affection, which eventually leads to winning our allegiance uh, until we get to a place where we feel like we can't really function without, you know, constantly checking Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or email or whatever. And uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not indicting digital technology companies, you know, but, but I am saying there is intention behind the design. And we have to be really careful and cautious of that because if we're not, it's going to form us and shape us into a certain type of people. And I don't just mean that hypothetically. I mean, like, neurologically, yeah, there's brain, research yeah. showing that the human brain is incredibly malleable and can be rewired by these technologies. And right. When we refresh our social media feed and discover that no one has liked or retweeted or shared our most recent post, we don't simply give up and never return. We refresh again to see if maybe this time will be different than the last time and every now and then it is. And then you move to uh, this point. You uh, talk about a recent survey that revealed that 25% of Americans 
admit to not having read a single book in part or in whole in the past year. That's not true of me, I can assure you, on this program. Not a single book read by at least one in four Americans. This is sad and surprising. The age of reading books is, quote, discernibly coming to an end under the pressure of developments in relation to the electronic media, the Internet, and digital technology. Why, then, do you believe that we are in very serious trouble? It's exactly what I said about the way these digital technologies uh, are, when we're not careful, the way that they are rewiring us on a neurological level. They are taking from us our appetite and our aptitude for anything that requires uh, a slow and steady patient engagement with one thing for a long extended period of time. Reading is one of those things. The problem particularly for uh, those of faith and um, those who are followers of Jesus, is that, borrowing from the late historian Larry Hurtado here, he, he calls Christianity that it has always been and always will be a bookish faith. And what he means by that is that um, the library of 66 books that we call the Holy Bible uh, has always been um, for the history of the Christian Church, it has always been sort of the anchoring point by which we understand who God is and what He's up to in our lives and in the world. And if we are losing our ability to read uh, slow and steady in long format, that's problematic because the Bible is a, a library of books that are intended to be read primarily as long format um, texts. So it's fine that we have, you know, a life verse, and I think it's wonderful to have a quiet time in the morning with your favorite cup of coffee and just read a short little text of a couple of verses, but that sort of engagement with the Bible, in my opinion, has always been meant to be secondary or supplemental to uh, the primary engagement, which is to carve out time and space in our lives to read the story of God the way it was meant to be read primarily, which is in long format, to see the entirety of the narrative. And uh, that's something that we're quickly losing the ability to do in the digital age, and it's something that I think uh, we have to recapture. Yeah, you're right. The peace of God covers so much more than just our personal lives. It certainly includes the details of what we're each going through, but it isn't exclusively for us. When we splice Scripture this way and allow it to stand on its own without context or an invitation to engage the entire story, we end up missing out on the learning, growth, and transformation that's only possible when we dive deep into the story from beginning to end and experiencing its ups, downs, and in-betweens. One, one of the major problems caused by the way we're filtering the Bible in the digital age is that it teaches people to see the Bible only as a source of comfort. But the Bible is intended to both comfort and confront in equal measure as it should, for this is the way we grow. So we're just not looking for the good, we're looking for the real, right? I mean, what, what it is yeah, we need absolutely. to know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what sorts of, you know, parents would we be if all we ever did was comfort our children? And in some way, you could argue that even our confrontations are a sort of comforting. 
Um, but confrontation is necessary. You know, just earlier today when my daughter and my son were fighting over a toy, I didn't go and comfort each of them individually <laughs> and say, hey, I'm so sorry your brother yes. took that toy from you or your sister didn't share with you. I confronted the two of them and I said, hey, you have to learn how to share and you have to be you know, generous with one another, all those sorts of things, right? That, and because that's driven by love. That's what it means to grow. That's what is necessary for them to grow into the sorts of people that, um, you know, that contribute to the good of the world and sorts of people who ultimately are uh, becoming who God has called them to be. And so that's exactly right. You know, the Bible, I think we use it just for one side of the coin, which is to make us feel better when we feel bad. And the reality is when you read the text in its entirety, there's, um, there's, you know, there's no denying that the scriptures are not there simply to comfort us, but to confront us to confront the brokenness in our lives and in the world. And uh, again, that, that not to quote myself, but as it should be, because yes. that is how we grow. And uh, that's so necessary. And you suggest that we, we should unlearn the skill of speed reading and relearn the basics of how to read a book slowly. Why is that? We probably just answered that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, first of all, speed reading, I quote, a couple of experts in the book, speed reading is not really a thing. There's one guy who says it really wonderfully. He says it shouldn't be called speed reading. It should be called like sort of reading <laughs> or skimming, you know, yes. speed skimming. And I think that's right. Uh, speed reading isn't truly reading um, because if by reading you just mean you're ingesting the words on the page, well, then certainly we can do that quickly and swiftly. But I think if by reading you mean really, really dive deep into the ideas, that are being presented, then there's no way to do that with speed. You have to, especially if the ideas are, you know, worth something, if they have any sort of depth, then you have to dive deep. And that's just the reality. Uh, so again, that too, I think, especially when it comes to the Bible, is so crucially important. And in your book, you talk about uh, how the broadcast era uh, has given rise to a shift in the way churches uh, approach sermons, and you outline that. You also indicate that you believe that we are all theologians. In what sense are we all theologians? Um, you know, A.W. Tozer, in his uh, seminal book, Knowledge of the Holy, he begins the book by saying the most important thing about us is what comes to our minds when we think about God. And I think he was spot on. And I think that's true of every human on the planet, not just people who are religious or people who consider themselves Christian. It's true of the atheist, you know, what, what the atheist thinks uh, what comes to their mind when they think about God is the most important thing about them. It's the anchor point. Uh, it's, it's the thing that frames their entire worldview. So again, for the atheist, it would be, when I think about God, I think about nothing because I don't think there is a God. Well, that is the primary operating system by which the atheist is living, and that's true for every human on the planet, regardless of their belief system. And so if that is true, then theology, which is the study of God, is, is we're doing theology all the time. You know, even if, you, if your belief is there is no God, well, you're, you're doing theology. Uh, you've just come to that conclusion by whatever means. Um, so that's what I mean, you know, and along those lines for Christians, for followers of Jesus, for those who uh, place their faith in God, then, of course, it's of utmost importance. It's even, you know, it's, it, it's accentuated, the importance, right? Because you have declared um, that God is 
the the center point, the anchor, you know, the one by which you are going to frame your worldview, the way you live and act and move in this world. And so if that is true, then the stuff that comes to our minds, what we think and know about God is of utmost importance. We're doing theology all the time. It's not the only thing that's important, obviously, uh, but it is of utmost importance. So you write in your book, Analog Church, ultimately we read the Bible to experience transformation. That's what we've been talking about tonight, to be changed completely from an old thing to a new thing. If our engagement with the Bible doesn't transform us, drawing us closer to God and remaking us into the image of Christ, then it's all for naught. I'm just skipping around here now. Scripture is a journey, but a life transformed into more Christ-likeness is the destination. Um, the books of the Bible are alive in ways that no other books in history are or ever will be. This is both a claim and a promise. We are not asking them to merely read a book or study a text. We are asking them to enter into our relationship. And then the you talk about the Eucharist, of course, the meal at the center of history, how important that is as we come together. And um, you you write also about why passing on the faith to the next generation is not easy or convenient. So you got to get the book Analog Church to answer the answer to those questions and uh, so many others. Our guest this evening has been Pastor Jay Kim, title of the book, Analog Church. Jay, thank you so much for being with us. You've been wonderful. Learned so much from the book and from you during this interview. Hope we can do something together again in the future. Oh, thank you so much, Father Ron. Really appreciate you taking the time. And blessings on you, your wife, and on your children. Thank you. All thank right. you. Good night. We uh, have come now again to the end of the program. Uh, just uh, some comments uh, I like to read from uh, from the from the uh, the book. Um, um, he writes uh, in his letter to the Corinthians. Paul writes this regarding the meal Jesus gave us. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. N. T. Wright points out that in Paul's explanation of what happens when we eat the bread and drink the cup, all three segments of time are represented. The present moment, whenever, somehow holds together. The one-off past event, the Lord's death, and the great future when the Lord's, when the God, when God's world will be remade under Jesus' loving rule until he comes. As technology speeds life up to unprecedented levels, people are becoming hurried and frenzied, in unprecedented ways. Life is always hectic. It's so easy to lose the ability to see the long view of history unfolding, both behind and before us. But in the cup and in the bread, all that God has been doing, or has been doing, is doing, and will eventually do, is encapsulated into the basic human act of eating and drinking. It is the meal at the center of history. This is what we are inviting people into every time we pause to remember Christ through the bread and the cup. As Wright puts it, in this meal, God's past catches up with us again 
and God's future comes to meet us once more. God's past catches up with us again, and God's future comes to meet us once more. Don't forget then how precious life is and how powerful love is. Tell someone now that you love him or her. Pray for peace as if it depended on you alone and come back next Sunday and amplify with us.